All right. So, uh, is Father's Day usually Father's Days? I have a guest speaker come. Like last week I spoke, but this year we're having a guest speaker come again. Uh, now, uh, I got to do a baby dedication in second service today. And so I asked Mike if he wanted to do both. Mike's like, no, I'll sleep in. Thanks. So I'm like, sweet, wonderful. Anyway, uh, and the baby dedication was actually for uh, Paul Mills and his wife Amanda and Alexia, their, their little daughter, who I kept calling Alexis this morning. I don't know why. Some sci-fi name, maybe. I don't know. It just st- stuck in the head. Um, so usually on Father's Day, we have something you know special for all the dads. So if you're a dad, raise your hand. And we have something. Keep it up. We got bacon for all of you. So my name is Paul. I have a six-pack. I'm not talking about my stomach. Because if I was talking about my stomach, I'd actually have a company water cooler. <laughs> I'm talking about my family. I have a beautiful wife, Amanda. I've got a five-year-old daughter, Sophia. And then twin boys. And by the way, that's my credential to teach today, is I have ITB credentials. That's identical twin boys. <laughs> it's Michael and Gabriel. And then our eight-month-old, Alexia. Now, I've been given the privilege to teach on Father's Day. And to me, I take it very seriously because fathers have such an important role in the lives of our kids and in society in general. And as I prepared for this, I realized how much I am in need of God's grace. It's like eating a slice of humble pie as I prepared for this. My favorite part of being a father is seeing the difference between my boys and my girls. I was eating dinner one night. I'm sitting down at the table, and Sophia's to my right, and she's humming this beautiful little song, la, 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 and none of them make sense, but they're just pretty, and she's sitting there with a piece of, with food, and she's forming a pony on her plate, and I look over at the boys. They had taken their corn on the cob, and they made machine guns out of them. And they're shooting me, and I'm like, I surrender, I surrender, I surrender. The total difference in personalities. I took them to the beach one day. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Wreck-It Ralph. Sophia was building this beautiful castle, and then the boys come in, and they wreck it. Crush, crush, crush. And Sophia's like, Screaming all sorts of profanities. Well, not profanities, but she's yelling at them. I knew exactly what they did. They destroyed something she made. Now, what I'm going to do today is I'm, I'm just going to go through what I see as some, some points that I find important as, as for us as fathers when we're raising our kids. But before I do that, let me go ahead and pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this time that we have together today. Just pray that you, give, you lift these fathers up, you give them wisdom, and you give them insight into how to raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And thank you for your grace. Amen. So the first point I'd like to talk about is loving our wives. Now, what does that have to do with raising kids? A lot. When our kids see that the husband and the wife love each other, they see the covenant relationship that Christ has with his church. And they also see a stable environment. So I I try to make my kids go, Ew, gross! Oh, daddy kissed mommy! That's disgusting! Because they see stability. Now one day, Amanda was doing some dishes, and I see Sophia going to the kitchen. And she had this look on her face, I knew she was up to something. She runs up, smack! 
right on Amanda's butt. And I wrote a note. Don't smack Amanda's butt in front of the kids. Maybe we don't want that, that to happen. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul lays out what we call a household code, starting in chapter 5, verse 25. He starts with the relationship between the husband and the wife. He says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you husbands love your wife as yourself. That's a big responsibility. What Paul is telling us as men, husbands, fathers, is be willing to lay down our lives for our wives. To be able to lay down what we consider our own rights. I deserve three hours of my own personal time. I deserve to be able to do whatever I want. But that's not what Paul's saying. That's not what Scripture is saying. See, culture doesn't promote this idea. Culture promotes the idea that it's all about what I get out of it. Culture has marriage seen as a contract, whereas Scripture teaches us it's a covenant. And what's the difference between a contract and a covenant? A contract says that there are two parties, and on each side you have your own interests. And if the other party is the offending party and does something that is not in the contract, then you can wipe your hands clean and the contract's voided. A covenant says, I will do any, everything and anything, no matter what the other party does, because I'm making the commitment, and this is a lifetime commitment. It's unconditional. I was, I'm not real big into celebrity news and gossip, but the other day I was reading a story about Kanye West and the Kardashians getting married. And in the article, it said that on Sunday, anybody could come in and see where the ceremony was going to take place. But the day before, they were having their prenups. Prenups are an exit strategy. You're setting yourself up for failure in your marriage. Because it's like, I don't want to lose what belongs to me. That's not a covenant relationship. Paul gives us Christ's example of how we are to treat our wives. His first example is sacrifice, or first example that I see in Christ is sacrifice. 1 Peter 2.22-24. He says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore his sins on on his body, bore our sins on his body, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Paul describes Christ's humility this is another thing that Christ has given us example. In Philippians 2, 3 through 8, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others count uh, others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he showed Christ's example through humility. Also unconditional love. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a covenant relationship. It's unconditional. See, the idea of sacrifice for our wives in, first, in the first century was uncalled for. It was revolutionary. See, the Jews wanted every stupid reason to be able to divorce their wives. Well, she just said something stupid, or she just did this, so I want to have every opportunity and uh, excuse to be able to divorce my wife. And in Matthew 19, we see Jesus interact with the religious leaders, and they're asking about divorce. And Jesus says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Sounds exactly like the Apostle Paul. They're both pointing back to Genesis, and they're saying this is the way God originally intended creation to be. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, when the Apostle Paul and Jesus talk about holding fast together and adjoining, it's not an idea of just like tape getting stuck to your arm. It's like a ligament becoming a part of your body. And if that breaks and it splits off, it hurts. It's painful. Yes, there are reasons for divorce in the Bible. But what he's saying is there is going to be pain. And lots of times it's our children that feel that pain. So my first point was to love your wife. My second is to delight in your children before discipline. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father of the son in whom he delights. The father first delights in his son before discipline. Yes, there is time for discipline. But for us, for instance, our kids, it's hard lots of times to see the difference between children being disobedient and if they're just having childish behavior. How many of you here have seen the movie Frozen? How many here are tired of hearing those songs? I want to build a snowman. <laughs> exactly. So there's, there's a snowman in there. His name's Olaf. The other day, Amanda was in the kitchen. She was doing dishes, or she was changing a diaper. And the kid's running from outside. Mommy, Mommy, we built you something. What did you build? A snowman in Santa Maria. How did they build a snowman in Santa Maria? Amanda goes outside, and she looks. They had taken a pile of dog poo and stuck it on the patio. They had taken sticks from the backyard, stuck them in and made the arms, and then a rock for the head. We called them Pulaf. That's childish behavior. If I was there, I would have said, guys, how did you not get poop on your hands when you moved the poop from the backyard over to the patio? To me, that's pretty creative. Martin Luther said, Spare the rod and spoil the child. That is true. But beside the rod, keep an apple to give him when he has done well. Discipline is important, but it has to be with love. Discipline, yes, is important. Proverbs thirteen twenty four says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. 
My next point is to raise your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul talks about a father's not provoking your children to anger, but bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I see four major ways to provoke our children to anger. First one is not letting your children be children. I was seeing an interview several years back with Michael Jackson. And in the interview, he never referred to his father as father. He referred to him as his, by his first name. When Michael Jackson was growing up, his dad never let him play with kids on the outside in the block, on the block. He made him practice his steps over and over and over. If Michael Jackson messed up a step, he'd get beat with a whip or with a belt. That's not letting your children be children. The second is being highly critical. We can provoke them by being highly critical. So, for instance, I could have ran out to, and saw Pulaf and be like, why didn't you use, you know snowmen are not made out of poop. They're made out of snow. And I could have criticized him for that. But that was pretty impressive to me. <laughs> Another way, showing favoritism. Sophia, why can't you be like your brother Gabe? Or Gabe, why, can he, why can't you be like Sophia? They do everything right, but you always mess it up. That's showing favoritism. Hypocrisy. The last way to provoke them is being a hypocrite. Do as I say, not as I do. Not living by our example. Alistair Begg, who's, who's in the, I've got his quote in the handout. He says, when my children hear godliness from my mouth and see wickedness in my life, then I point them to heaven, but I lead them to hell. They see everything we're doing. And if we're not showing that example, they will see that. Now, for Amanda and I, the way we try to raise our kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord is trying to bring God in as many conversations as possible. So if they get a boo-boo on their legs or their arms and they get a scab, we tell them, that's God's band-aid. We try to bring them in to the conversation. We'll be at Waller Park, and there'll be these gorgeous trees and the leaves will be falling. And we'll say, isn't God amazing to be able to create trees like this? Now, one time I took the kids out to the ocean, and we're at Grover Beach. And you know how sometimes you'll be in the water, and it'll be real low, and then all of a sudden a wave will come crashing in, and it'll catch you off guard. Well, I was holding Maximus, our boxer, with one arm, and Gabe was out there, and the water came crashing in, and it knocked Gabe over on his face. And he told my grandma, when he first saw my grandma after that, he said, my daddy rescued me. He saved me. That's a perfect message of the gospel. And so when I talk to him and he mentions that, I say, that's exactly what happened to daddy. See, God pulled me up from darkness into light. He pulled me from, the, he pulled me from death into life. It's a perfect illustration. Find those illustrations that you can give your kids. One evening, I was, I was giving the kids a bath. I had all three in the bathtub, and it's chaos when you have them all in the bathtub at once. It's noisy, it's rowdy, but there was just a second where it was quiet. And Sophia said this. She asked me, Daddy, if God created everything, then who created God? She's a, little, she's a four-year-old philosopher asking me this question. So I, I got down low, and I, I looked at her, and I said, Honey... I'm looking right in your eyes. I said, honey, nobody created God. God created everything. Nobody created God. He's always existed. He's eternal. We just had an LMAU class on apologetics. I'd highly encourage you to take advantage of the LMAU classes. 
Because those are the type of questions that we discussed. How often should we preach the gospel to our kids? As much as possible. Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a, hand, a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on, and on your gates. See, to the Jews, by the time their kids reached the age of five, they were told to start having their children acquainted with the scriptures. And we can see that in, when Paul's talking to Timothy. In 2 Timothy three fourteen through 15, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings in that case is the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. Timothy's mom was Jewish. She was going from Deuteronomy 6, that we are to make sure they're acquainted with the scriptures. Alistair Begg also says this, Train a child. Train him in the way he should go. There is a way that seems right to a man that leads to death. There is a broad road that leads to destruction. And by their natural bend, our children would go down that road. The narrow road is not the road they will find themselves on by heritage or by nature or by inclination. Only by grace can we enter, and only by grace can we stand. Now our kids are younger. They're all under the age of six. And what we try to do is we try to read the the Jesus Storybook Bible to them every night. Because what I love about this is one of my favorites, is that every Old Testament story at the end of it points to Jesus. So when it's talking about the Ten Commandments, the story of, of Moses and the Ten Commandments, at the end, it'll say, Israel couldn't keep the law, but God is sending a rescuer that can keep it perfectly. It's always pointing to Jesus. I highly recommend that for your kids uh, if they're younger. If you have older kids, uh, I would recommend something like this. Even adults can read this. Because what this does, it's, uh, Willie, Dr. William Lane Craig, he's a Christian philosopher. And what he does, he has a series called What is God Like? What he does, he explains attributes of God in, in it. There's about 10 Ten books in the in the series, and so he talks about the Trinity. He talks about God as Spirit. He talks about God is all known. God is everywhere. These questions that even adults have problems with, and if we need to answer our kids when they ask questions like "Who created God?", then that's excellent material. We just don't want to turn these into some kind of legalistic ritual. Sophia will joke around sometimes. I'll take her through these little Christian catechisms, and she memorizes it really well. Kids have an excellent memory. But she'll joke around sometimes and laugh and and say silly stuff. And we laugh with her because we're enjoying our child. We're delighting in her. She doesn't have to get it right every single time. Half the time, she probably doesn't understand the concepts yet. But we're, we're training her early. Now, my next point is to is to older men that either don't have kids or the kids are out of the house. We need to be a Paul to the Timothys. And what do I mean by that? Timothy, we have no idea where his father's at. Most likely his father's Greek. But he had a Jewish mom that got him acquainted with the scriptures. The apostle Paul pretty much took him under his wing and trained him up like a child in the faith. Look how the apostle Paul refers to him. 1 Timothy 1-2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, 
Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Timothy 1.18 This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made, made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. 2 Timothy 1.2 to, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Younger men need older godly men. I had a, my old realtor back in Arizona. He's a perfect example of a, a man I would totally follow. We had a, an estate issue going on where somebody really wronged my side of the family. And I was bitter. I was angry. And I called him up expecting him to tell me what I wanted to hear. And I told him, I was like, I am angry. This person totally wronged me. And what my friend Bill told me, he said, Paul, you've got to let it go. The bitterness and the hatred, it's going to eat you like poison. He told, me, he told me what I needed to hear, not what I wanted. That's the type of godly man you need to have in your life. My last point is humility. Like I said, it was like eating, preparing for this is like eating a slice of humble pie. See, one morning, it's about 6 in the morning, and Amanda texts messaged me from the other bedroom, and she says, I think the boys are up. Can you help out? And I'm thinking to myself, I can't help you out right now. I'm busy. I'm writing a chapter on loving your wives. <laughs> Smack right to my face. It takes humility. Only by the grace of God can we lead our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In 2 Corinthians, when the Apostle Paul, he's, he's, talking, he's asking for God if, he, if he'll remove the thorn from his flesh. And what does God say? He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And when he talks about this idea of the power of Christ resting on him, it's this idea of a tent. That reminds me of a story. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were going, decided to go on a camping trip. After a bottle of wine and some dinner, they decided to go to sleep. A couple hours later, Holmes awakes, and he nudges his faithful friend, Watson. Watson, look up the sky and tell me what you see. Dr. Watson replied, I see millions of stars. And Watson, what does that tell you? He pondered for a minute. Astronomically, it shows me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. What does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes was quiet for a minute and then spoke. Watson, you idiot. Someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) Took a little while for some people to get that. God's grace is right in our face. And so many times we're so worried about the proper methods for raising our kids when God's grace and his power is right there staring us in the face. Christ's power rests upon us like a tent. We have a throne of grace. As the author of Hebrews 4, 6, in, uh, author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4.16 tells us, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. As a parent, I see the need for grace all the time. It's, like I said, it's, it's humbling. James, in James chapter 1, he talks about hearers of the word that aren't doers. And he uses an example of a mirror. Somebody who hears the word but doesn't do it is like somebody who looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looked like. 
Children are like little walking mirrors following us around. There was one time where I got in the habit of saying the word freaking. And so we were, one time we were coming back from Grover Beach, and I'm driving. And Sophia is behind me humming a pretty song like she always does. And I turn back, and she says, Daddy, keep your eyes on the freaking road. They're like little mirrors. We have to be careful with how our examples around them. My favorite example, though, of humility is Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Here's Isaiah, a prophet of God. This is before he's a prophet of God. And he sees the glory of God. And when the seraphim, they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah, after the threshold shook and the house is full of smoke, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then the seraphim takes a burning uh, coal from the altar and places it on his mouth and says, This has touched your lips. Therefore, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then God asks, Who do we send? And after Isaiah was humbled, he said, Send me. As fathers, God has chosen and called us to lead our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And when we're humbled by the glory of God, it makes it easier. It's when we see his glory, the power of his grace, then we can lead our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, when I concluded, I just want to say that as a father, we have such an important role. And it's, it just can't, it's not taken lightly. It's just we influence, how we raise our kids influences how society is eventually going to be. And it's just such an important role again. Now, as the band comes up and we pre- prepare for communion, I wanted to read a little section from the Jesus Storybook Bible. He says this, Then Jesus picked up some bread and broke it. He gave it to his friends. He picked up a cup of wine and thanked God for it. He poured it out and shared it. My body is like this bread. It will break, Jesus told them. This cup of wine is like my blood. It will pour out. But this is how God will rescue the whole world. My life will break and God's broken world will mend. My heart will tear apart and your hearts will heal. Just as the Passover lamb died, so now I will die instead of you. My blood will wash away all your sins and you'll be clean on the inside in your hearts. So whenever you eat and drink, remember, Jesus said, I've rescued you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Abba, Father, some of us may not have had a father that was around often, but we know that we have a perfect Heavenly Father who we can call Abba, Father. Just thank you for your grace. Give us humility. Give us wisdom and raising our children. I lift all these fathers up now to you. In your precious name, amen.